From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Another reason I wrote the book is to push the case for strong arguments, strong debates, and strong interviews. And I talk a lot about that. What could the media be doing better? Because I genuinely believe unless you have tougher, more challenging conversations, we're not going to be able to save democracy. We're not going to be able to save our media. We're not going to be able to save our public spaces. That's Mehdi Hassan. He's a political journalist and host of The Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC. He has a reputation for being a tough but fair interviewer, often debating with guests across the political spectrum. Now he's out with a new book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. I spoke with Hassan at a live event at the Strand Bookstore in New York City on February 28th, where we discussed his strategy for winning arguments, the art and science of debate, and what in the world is a gish galloper. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Before I get to your questions, there's exciting news from CAFE. The new season of Up Against the Mob, hosted by Ellie Honig, is here. You can listen to the first episode now. Just search for and follow Up Against the Mob in your listening app. And now, on to your questions. This question comes in an email from Sandra, who asks, Do you think the leaders of Silicon Valley Bank will face prosecution? Do you see any evidence of illegal behavior on their part? So that's a good question. It's very early. There has been reporting in the last few days that As you might imagine, the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission has begun an investigation of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, as I'm sure you know by now. Silicon Valley Bank, not a gigantic bank, about $200 billion in holdings and deposits, collapsed about two weeks ago in the face of a bank run, a good old-fashioned bank run where people were seeking to get their deposits back and the bank couldn't keep up. The government shut it down and it's now dealing with the fallout. As you might imagine, as a general matter, when some financial calamity strikes, whatever the nature of it, the DOJ generally opens up an investigation to make sure that they find out what the truth was, whether a crime was committed, and to assure themselves that a crime was not committed. Right now, the reporting is that the FBI in the Northern District of California field office is investigating the doings at Silicon Valley Bank, and the SEC is doing the same. Now, it's generally understood that the cause of the failure was, as I said, a good old-fashioned bank run, that may be due in part to bad investment decisions made by the bank in the face of rising interest rates. And also perhaps, some people have argued, some regulatory rollback. The failure was also arguably aided by the fact that some well-known and influential depositors wanted to withdraw their money and perhaps set off a panic. None of that on its face, and I don't know a lot, and it's early in the process so far, none of that on its face looks like criminal conduct. What's probably going on with the DOJ and SEC investigation is whether or not there was illicit activity taking place in the time right before the collapse on the part of people who had material non-public information. Were they doing things with the stock when they shouldn't have been? That's fertile ground for investigation. They're also probably looking at, and some people have reported this, about what kinds of representations were made by leaders of the bank about the solvency of the bank, about the health of the investments that the bank was making, and the general stability of the bank. If you're making false representations and putting them out publicly, 
Well, that's a problem and it can lead to civil or criminal liability. It's not a surprise that they're investigating. It doesn't mean that anyone will ever be charged. It doesn't mean that there was necessarily any criminal activity either that caused the bank's failure or that was done in the wake of the bank's failure or in anticipation of the bank's failure. But such investigations are the norm and I expect we'll know a lot at some point. So a lot of people are asking questions about what is going on and what will happen in the Manhattan DA's office. There has been swirling reporting that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, is on the verge of indicting Donald Trump with respect to the hush money payment to former porn star Stormy Daniels. As you'll remember, Michael Cohen made payments totaling $130,000 that he said was designed to keep her quiet on the eve of the election in 2016. Donald Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen, his personal lawyer, for that $130,000 and on the books and records of the Trump organization, listed those as legal expenses when, arguably, they were in fact campaign expenses because they were related to helping Donald Trump win the election, or at least not lose the election, based on what Stormy Daniels might have said. That's the core of the controversy. Michael Cohen was charged for that, among other things, by the Southern District of New York in a federal crime. He has been prosecuted. He pled guilty. He has served his sentence. And he now has a podcast. And in all that time, nothing has happened to Donald Trump, even though Michael Cohen has said that he undertook those activities at the direction and with the understanding of Donald Trump. In some ways, you might say this was a case for the Southern District to have brought because they indicted and convicted Michael Cohen as an initial matter, but they have clearly taken a pass. Now, the question of whether or not this is a small thing to indict him over depends a little bit on what the indictment looks like and what the charges are. Falsification of books and records as a general matter in New York is just a misdemeanor to go through all this effort and to create all this controversy and have people wonder about the political motivations of any prosecutor, whether it's well-founded or not, over a misdemeanor doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that might be worthwhile. However, under New York law, although falsifying business records alone is a misdemeanor, meaning no longer than one year in prison, that activity, that criminal conduct, amounts to a felony charge if prosecutors can show that the defendant had intent to defraud, including an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. So the question is, beyond falsifying business records, what's that second crime? And if you can prove that second crime and a nexus to that second crime, then I don't think it's a small thing. I think any felony violation committed by someone, whether they're former president or not, is significant and is important if it can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, there are challenges, and I don't know what the evidence is, and I haven't been in the grand jury, and we understand that Michael Cohen, literally as I'm speaking and recording this, may be in the grand jury right now. And at least half a dozen other people have gone into the grand jury. But I think even from publicly available information, we know that there might be some challenges with respect to bringing this case. Now, the second crime that would be combined with the falsifying business records that would cause this to be elevated to a felony might be a violation of New York state election law. It might be the violation of federal election law, which is, in fact, one of the things that was at the center of the charges against Michael Cohen. These are somewhat novel theories. They haven't been fully tested in New York state court, and we wonder how it'll be received. Those are among some of the challenges. There's also a factual challenge and a credibility challenge, which it seems that the, the Southern District of New York was concerned about, and that is the viability of Michael Cohen as a witness. As we have said on this podcast many times before, I don't mean any disrespect to Michael Cohen, but it's a matter of fact that he pled guilty to lying in an official proceeding. That'll be cause for very robust cross-examination of him and I think no matter how you slice this case, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, and no matter what other facts there are brought to bear and whether the corroboration there is, Michael Cohen is a central witness in any Manhattan DA's prosecution of Donald Trump. And so he needs to be believable and he needs to be believed. There are other challenges as well. One of those challenges is referenced in another question in a tweet from at some guy from Virginia, nice Twitter handle, who asks, can you explain how the statute of limitations applies to Trump in the Manhattan DA's investigation of his hush money payments? And when must Bragg file charges if he is to do so? So that's a great question. And there's some controversy over that as well. Generally speaking, the crimes that are being considered here have a statute of limitations of five years. It's been more than five years since the last hush money payment was made. However, New York state law allows for the tolling of the statute of limitations. In other words, the pausing of the statute of limitations if the target or the defendant has been out of the state or unavailable in the state for periods of time. As you may recall, Donald Trump, happily for many New Yorkers, including myself, spent precious little time in New York while he was president of the United States, opting to spend most of his time in the White House 
or in Florida. And in fact, in 2019, changed his permanent legal residence to Florida from New York. So there would be decent arguments on the part of the prosecution that that statute was told and maybe they have ample time, but that's going to be something that'll be litigated, argued about, and we'll see how that gets resolved if a charge is brought. I wonder also if there's an argument on the part of prosecutors that because Donald Trump as president, as we know very clearly from the Mueller investigation, was not susceptible to criminal prosecution, maybe that's also an argument why the statute of limitations should have been told. Because even if the Manhattan DA's office had acted with promptness and alacrity and tried to prosecute him, indict him back in 2018 or 19 or even 2020, that wouldn't have been available under the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted. So maybe that's an argument for why the statute of limitations also has not run. Here's a question that comes in a tweet from at Bum. A lot of good Twitter handles today. Does Trump not meeting with the grand jury speed up charging decisions? Well, that's a reference to the fact that the Manhattan DA's office has invited Donald Trump to come testify. He will not testify under any circumstances. He will assert his Fifth Amendment privilege. We know that because he's got legal jeopardy here. There are real facts that are problematic for him. We also know that because not that long ago, he asserted his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination with respect to an investigation being brought by the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. So I don't know if it speeds up the charging decision. All signs are that this is going to happen relatively soon. And so we'll have to see. Obviously, this is a story we've been covering very closely for a long time, as a lot of people have, and we'll keep covering it. We'll be right back with my conversation with Mehdi Hassan. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. In 2023, there's no doubt Americans could use some tips on how to debate, not just for the sake of arguing, but to persuade. Mehdi Hassan, host of The Mehdi Hassan Show, has been arguing with people across politics, journalism, and media since he was a student at Oxford. He joined me live at The Strand in New York City to discuss his new book, Win Every Argument. It's a good crowd. We draw a lot of people. 
I wish they were here for me and not you. <laughs> Are you starting an argument? <laughs> no. Um, so uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Um, it's very important at this time. L let me see if I understand the premise here. It's win every argument, not draw, not get close, not be a good showing, but win. Am I right? Yeah. And not some arguments, but, but every argument. <laughs> so let me caveat what was a deliberately... My publishers are here tonight. I want to say a big shout out to Tim Duggan and Marion at Henry Holt. And we talked about this title and it changed along the way. And people, there's been some snark from some folks saying, why would you want to win every argument? Who wants to win it? That's not a productive. The point of the book is to say, I'm going to teach you how to win every argument that you want to win. Just because I'm teaching you how to win every argument doesn't mean you have to try and win every argument. But, so, but, but what, if there, what if it's an argument that you should not win because you have the crappier side of the argument? No, 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 I don't agree with that because sometimes, so a couple of things. Number one, I make very clear in the dedication at the front of the book that there's certain people you shouldn't argue with and you should accept that you get defeated by and that is my wife. So <laughs> um, I say you can win every argument, but you don't have to um, choose which argument. But if you so want to win every argument, please read the book and we'll give you some skills. But just to come back to your point, actually there are some people in life, you know this better than me. You are a lawyer. You're a former prosecutor. Um, sometimes you will fight a case where maybe you don't have the best arguments, but your job depends on it. You might believe justice depends on it, and therefore you want to win that argument. I can give you many examples where you may have a crappier side, but you still want to win, need to win, have to win. So let me give you a hypothetical. Two people are about to have an argument or a debate. They've both read your book very carefully. <laughs> who's, winning, who's winning that argument? People, What's the differential? People keep posting the Spider-Man meme that they bought the book <laughs> and everyone's got the book pointing at each other. As to I guess that's a way of asking, apart from internalizing the lessons of your book, what other qualities make for a good arguer or debater? So I would say that if you've internalized the lessons of the book, the most important lessons to internalize are the last third of the book. The book is divided into three sections. The first section is... The power of threes. The power of three, which is also a say. chapter. I know. <laughs> it's also a chapter in the book. You'll see me doing a lot tonight. I say three for everything. But it's divided into three sections. The first section is the fundamentals. I want to try and teach you the basics that I'm not trying to take credit for, stuff that goes back to Aristotle, to Cicero, goes back to ancient Roman Greece. The basics. The middle section is the kind of fun section. It's the kind of tricks, techniques how to get yourself out of a hole, stuff that I've tried to do in the past, the secrets, you could call it. And the third section is what you might call WBD. It's worthy but dull. Or how or people perceive it as worthy but dull, which is practice, preparation, delivery, confidence building, how to stay calm. And that is the most important part of the book in many ways, because I genuinely believe that you cannot do anything that you do or I do or many people in this room do in public life in our roles without that stuff. So to come back to your point about the two people in the hypothetical who have read the book, it'll be the people who have absorbed those chapters the most and really worked on the preparation and delivery. Because one thing that really annoys me is people who think, and one of the reasons I wrote the book it's because people who think that what you do or what I do is, comes naturally. We just wing it. We were born this way. And it's just not the case. Or maybe for you it is I the case. It. Uh, it's not. I'm, I'm modest enough to I say it's I prepared not the case. for this. Good. Um, I want to ask you the question that everyone asks, and I'm trying to avoid asking the question, why did you write the book? So I'll ask a different version of it, because maybe this is part of the answer. Um, do you think that the art of debate and argument in this country and around the world in recent times is on the wane or not? And if so, why? Uh, it, that is a great uh, version of the question because it also takes on board what I do for a living, which is journalism, media, interviewing. And that is one of the reasons. I wrote the book for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons definitely was because I saw uh, a gap in the market, not in a kind of market sense, but a gap in what people are talking about. Nobody's really talking about what's happened to the degradation of our public debate and discussion. If they do, they don't really have any solutions. Uh, I especially, if you, if you don't bring the political angle into it, I saw what's happening in politics, that one side is getting rhetorically beaten up. Uh, and I wanted to help which, push that. Which side is that? I couldn't possibly imagine. <laughs> um, 
I think liberals, progressives, leftists are losing a lot of arguments that they should be winning uh, for many reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But also, I wanted to talk about my career and what I do for a living. Uh, one of the things people say to me is they enjoy the stuff I do. I've been here eight years now. Um, I work for NBC now, but people who have enjoyed my stuff going back to Al Jazeera English days like the fact that I do very combative, challenging interviews. And the argument was, well, not enough people in the US media do that. And so, again, another reason I wrote the book is to push the case for strong arguments, strong debates, and strong interviews. And I talk a lot about that. What could the media be doing better? Because I genuinely believe unless you have tougher, more challenging conversations, we're not going to be able to save democracy. We're not going to be able to save our media. We're not going to be able to save our public spaces. So, so just to, to pick up on that, the gap and the failing you saw was not in the um, inefficacy of arguments between spouses or in the workplace, but among journalists, people in your profession. You Journalists, politicians, public figures, activists, yeah. campaigners. You know, the book is not just about arguing. It is about public speaking. It's about doing interviews. It's about campaigning. Um, there's a lot of walks of life where we could improve both the nature of our discourse and our ability to defend our positions. It frustrates me when people I agree with or like or think should win an argument lose, not because of the substance or not even because they've been dealt a bad hand, but just because they didn't, weren't equipped with the right skills, didn't have the right tricks, hadn't worked on their confidence or delivery. That pains me. As someone who loves this stuff and lives this stuff, that kind of stuff gives me an ulcer when I see that on TV. I will literally throw stuff at the TV. And when, my wife knows that well. The, um, this idea that I know you've been asked about, and it's almost, um, the question is almost demanded based on the premise of the title. There are people who say Dale Carnegie, I think, is among them, that the, the point of discourse is not necessarily to engage in a debate and win a debate. That if you're getting in a debate and you're winning it, there's a cost to that also, because you've maybe alienated this person who might otherwise become an ally. Do, what do you think about that comment? So it's a fair point. Everything in context. And, and my response to Dale Carnegie is, and I quote him in the book saying, I would run from an argument. And I, and I say I would run towards an argument. Um, my response to that is, well, you know, it depends what scenario you're in. Again, to go back to your earlier point about should everyone win an argument, etc. In some walks of life, you can't shy away from that. You know, if you want to say right now, that we should all just shy away from argument and debate and just keep our heads down and try and be friendly and kumbaya. Good luck to you in the America of 2023. Good luck to you saving the America of 2023 because there are people in this country who are happy to have the arguments, happy to do it in bad faith, happy to lie, gaslight, steamroll. And I'm saying, you know what? If you believe in certain values, in justice, in equality, in democracy, in human rights, equip yourself in a way that you can therefore win those arguments. The idea that you can run away from arguments in the public space, you know, I, I can't remember when Dale Carnegie exactly lived, but where we're living right now, was he living in an era of our cable news environment or our political environment or our kind of what's going on with democracy? So yeah, I just think, and it's not just about politics, to be clear. I say it's, you know, people in the boardroom, people in the courtroom, uh, people who are activists. In every walk of life right now, there's a lot of polarization and division. And I'm saying, look, there's a hundred other books you can read about how to not alienate the other person. And that's not what this book is about. Don't buy that book if you're looking to make friends. Do buy this book if you're looking to win over audiences. What I say in the book is sometimes we get lost in trying to, we get so obsessed with the person we're up against or in dialogue with or in debate with, we forget that they might not be the most relevant or important person. The most important relevant people might be these people, right. the neutral audience to people watching that yeah. you want to convince and persuade. I mean, certainly that's true. And I want to get to politics a little bit later. When you have two with the jury. Yeah, you have two candidates arguing. The audience is not the adversary. The audience is is the decision maker. In politics, it may be the voters, and in, in a courtroom, it may be the jury. Um, and I want to come back to that in the audience in a moment. Talk a little bit about the circumstances in which friends or colleagues, without an audience and without a camera and without a microphone, are trying to talk about some issue, political issue, financial issue, What's your advice in that particular context? You need to have an emotional appeal. You need to identify with the other person. I talk a lot about the need uh, not to just throw facts and figures and logic and studies and policy papers at the other person. Um, and I talk about the need to bond with the person, to share a personal story, share an anecdote. You want to win people over on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you're not going to do it with a bunch of opinion polls. You're not going to do it with a bunch of peer-reviewed papers. You're going to do it because you find something in common with the other person. You're going to do it because maybe you do flatter the other person individually. Uh, you're going to do it because you're going to tell a story 
that the other person thinks, I understand that story. The story sets off a light bulb. The story is something I can relate to. So that's one point. The other point I make is I do write a chapter about listening. People want to be heard. They want to be seen in a conversation. And too often in discussions, debate, arguments, and I speak from personal experience, we are not listening to the other person. We are waiting for our turn to speak. And that means that when it comes time to speak, the other person is not going to engage. So I talk a lot in the book about engagement, emotional appeals, empathy. I'm sorry, I didn't hear anything you said. <laughs> it's an obvious joke when we talk about listening. Are there any and there's a chapter on humor, Preet, as well. <laughs> We're going to talk about You're that. You're doing well. <laughs> um, is there a circumstance in which a man should ever argue with his mother-in-law? Well, my wife is in the audience, so I don't know what's going to go back to my mother-in-law. Um, but I would say, I have argued with my mother-in-law in the past. It didn't work did, out so Did you well. listen? It, it didn't work out. I don't know if I listened. Um, but I would say that uh, the circumstances, again, are one in, in which you need to use, if it's your mother-in-law, you got to use, I talk about two types of listening, I'm sure you're all aware of it, critical listening, empathetic listening. With your mother-in-law, it's got to be empathetic listening. The only way you're going to get through to someone like your mother or mother-in-law, or even your spouse, is going to be walk a mile in their shoes, put yourself in their position. Um, you know, social scientists call it perspective taking. And the studies show that if you spend 10 minutes at a doorstep doing what's called deep canvassing, hearing people's fears, prejudices out, talking it out, that can lead to a three-month improvement, quote unquote, in their views or a change or a correction in their views. So I do think a lot of that, the literature is out there on that, on empathy, on perspective taking. Um, I'll be honest, it's not stuff I stress in the book because again, I'm not asking you, I'm certainly not advising you to try and win an argument with your mother-in-law, uh, but all the other scenarios I am. So there's a category of debate that is apart from, you know, things that most people think you can persuade someone about. You can have an argument about what the speed limit should be with your neighbor on the street. Um, it's important, but it's not the most momentous thing. And people, you might imagine, are not deeply spiritually, religiously, or morally committed to a position on it. When I was in college and, and learning about uh, political science, which is what I studied, I got into a lot of friendly debates about intractable social issues. I had, and I'm sure many have, about abortion, when does life begin? the death penalty, all sorts of things. I have those debates less now and tell me if I should or should not. Because at a certain point, there are groups of people who are just not persuadable, and I'm giving you a cynical view. If you're 54 years old like I am and you have thought for decades about the issue and you are pro-choice because you've lived life and you've debated the issues and studied it, and another person in good faith is pro-life, what does that debate look like? What should that debate look like if everyone's in good faith adhering to their positions based on their moral perspective or religious perspective? It's a good question. I guess it depends where you're having the debate. Is it kind of a formal university style or Oxford Union style debate? Is it a high school debate for a competition? Is it a debate on cable news in the space of six minutes? Late Let's at do night? cable news. So... <laughs> Do you know something about that? So a little bit, uh, still, still learning the ropes. Um, I would say, again, it depends on the casting. And one chapter I wish I'd written in this book, and if I write a sequel, I probably would include it, which is, when do you walk away from an argument? When do you walk away from a debate? Which I think which is what you're kind of touching at. And I've said very clearly, I do have my own kind of hygiene tests. I won't have an election denier on the show. I won't have a climate change denier on the show because it's a pointless. I'm not going to have that argument. I'm not going to argue about whether up is down, black is white, hot is cold. I'm not going to argue reality. Now, abortion is a, uh, is a, uh, it's, not, it's not that kind of debate. It's something that's happening. It's a moral debate. People in good faith can hold uh, different moral convictions based on the same set of facts, which yeah. is what makes it so interesting. And I talk in the book about how you frame an argument. You can take the same facts about abortion and go in completely different directions in good faith. Um, I would say that, yes, we should have those discussions. But again, how do you have those discussions depends on who it is. So if you are having a genuine good faith or a debate with a bunch of quote unquote independent voters, what politicians have to do, the independents. I think the number of independents in this country is hugely exaggerated personally. But let's say there's a crowd of genuine neutrals independents. Have that discussion in good faith. Bring your arguments. Bring your evidence from the scientific literature. Bring your moral claims. But if it's 
if it's a Republican politician, let's say, who's notorious for using it as a wedge issue and just wants to accuse opponents of abortion of being baby killers, I would argue you argue in a different way. If you're even going to have the argument, you do it in a much different way. Then you look at some of the spicier chapters in the book that I'd written about how to take them down, about how to make them look foolish, about how to rhetorically beat them up, and about how, again, to appeal to the audience. To come back to your point about persuadables, I agree with you. I'm somebody who thinks there's a big chunk of this country that, that are lost, that are lost to rational argument, that have gone down a rabbit hole. Uh, you know, I just did my show today, uh, a big chunk on QAnon. And there are far more people who are down that QAnon rabbit hole, not just Republicans, but across the political spectrum than we would like to admit. There are a lot of people who aren't persuadable, but there are still millions more who are. And so again, you have to think, who is my audience? When I talk about the election denialism on my show, which I do a lot, I'm not trying to convince hardcore dyed-in-the-wool Trump voters that the election wasn't stolen. They think stuff came on bamboo paper from Asia or whatever it was, and Italian satellites and all and none. I'm not trying to convince them. I am trying to convince my audience at home, number one, what the facts are, because truth matters, and number two, why it matters, why it should yeah. matter to them. And sometimes as a politician, I'm not a politician, but politicians also want to rouse up their own base, Preet. Sometimes they don't care about the other yeah. side. Sometimes it's about communicating to your own base on an issue like abortion, why this matters, why you should turn up to the polls, why you should continue to care about a certain issue. Yeah. That matters too in terms of messaging yeah. and debating. I feel like implicit in your response is a critique of media. And other people talk about this. Adam Grant, who is also an author and has been on my podcast, has made this point um, in a variety of contexts, but specifically about COVID. Um, and I wonder if you have a further thought on this. The media spends a lot of time focusing on the extremes, right? So the people who were the most anti-vax or the most anti-masking, even in the face of you know good medical evidence that the contrary was the better practice, are the ones that get all the attention. As opposed to a, a larger segment of the population that was just kind of skeptical and not sure, and needed more information, was acting in good faith. And so the debate gets channeled towards the most extreme on one side and the most extreme on the other. Is that a fair assessment of a lot of media? I think it's a fair assessment of a lot of media, but I also, I would push back a little bit because I'm very, people who follow me know that I'm very critical of uh, certain media practices. Um, but I think when it, it again, it depends, as I say in the book, define your terms. When you say extremes, what do you mean by extremes? Are you talking about kind of extreme conspiracy theorists? Are you talking about, ex what's an extreme political view? Like Bernie Sanders, people say, Bernie Sanders is the far left. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the far right. Marjorie Taylor Greene likes Nazis. Bernie Sanders wants universal healthcare. That's not the same yeah, no, thing, so right? So I worry about when we talk about yeah. extremes. So my point is, I agree with you on certain extremes. Green's a good example. I cover on my show a lot. I don't like it. It's like when I cover, I, I wish I didn't have to cover it. I wouldn't have her on my show because I think that would be a point. Oh, Marjorie aside. Taylor Green. Marjorie Taylor yeah, Green. Not the color. Not the color green. I wouldn't, I wouldn't debate with the color green. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't debate with Marjorie Taylor Green either. Uh, and I say because, you know, it would be a pointless, it would be a point. She's a, she's a, she grifts and she gaslights. There's no good faith argument to be had there. Um, but I talk about her a lot, even though I don't like it because she's an influential figure, because her extreme views are no longer that extreme and they're actually mainstream in one of our two main political parties. So a lot of us journalists have had painstaking conversations about how do you cover this person or this policy without also elevating that person and that policy. And we saw that in 2016 with Trump, 2020 with Trump, and today with the Bobots and MTGs and those attention seekers. To be fair to my colleagues in the media, and I'm often critical of, of my colleagues in the media, all of us are struggling with this. There is no easy answer as to how you deal with a bunch of gaslighting people because there are only two main political parties. I mentioned earlier, I won't have an election dinner on my show. I don't know how long I can stick to that position. I'll tell you why, because we're coming up to the 2024 presidential. If I hold to that position, and if the majority of Republicans are of that view, that means I'm basically saying I'm not going to have anyone from one major political party on my show. That's a hard choice to make, even if you want to be a purist on the principle. Yeah. I don't know for how long I can sustain that position. So going back to your question a second ago about what it means to be extreme, I think it depends on the context, as you've been saying. But to, to use the abortion example that just popped into my head, um, I don't mean to use a, you know, a, a pejorative term like extreme, but on one end of the spectrum, there might be a subset of the population who believes that at the moment of conception, there is life, and any action taken to harm what that person perceives as a life is untenable and should be illegal. And at the other end of the spectrum, just to use this example, you might have someone who thinks, 
that abortion on demand up until the moment of, of that birthing begins should be fully legal and common even. But there are a lot of people in the middle of that spectrum who think that, you know, there is a life there. They're not exactly sure when it is. And I wonder if you have a view about picking your spots on a debate like that. And instead of, you know, moving towards one extreme or the other, trying to pick away at some reasonable people who might be in the middle who think, well, you know, I, I, I tend to think of myself as pro-life, but it does bother me that there might be a law in my state that prevents abortion in cases of rape and incest. Do you have a thought about that, about picking your spots? I do think there are a lot of people in this country who don't like the labels, who don't want to be pigeonholed in one box or another. And I talk about in that in the book in the context of audiences, in terms of knowing where your audience is coming from, knowing roughly where they stand without pigeonholing them into one box or another. Because if you can know roughly where they stand, you can start tailoring your arguments to that person. A lot of arguments get shut down at the beginning because of the application of labels. I think you can have interesting discussions about the environment, about healthcare, about uh, politics, about abortion, about what all sorts of other controversial issues if we avoid labels from the outset and just stick to the issues. But that goes back to the very start of our conversation, which is very few people want to debate the issues, which is what kills me. Most people do just want to do labels, do name calling, and turn everything into a wedge issue. I mean, this is the problem. And unfortunately, I, I'm not going to say it's both sides. I'm going to say, unfortunately, it's one side of the political practice that does it more than other, that turns every single bloody issue into a wedge issue, whether it's Dr. Seuss, uh, or, you know, whatever it is, becomes the latest culture wars issue of the day. It becomes very hard to have a debate in good faith. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Mehdi Hassan after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. And you mentioned liberals a second time. And I think you said earlier that they're losing arguments they should win. And I wonder if one of the reasons for that is, and, and I'd help you address it, sometimes it's the case, not, it's not always against the liberal conservative divide, but sometimes the more complicated explanation, the more complicated basis for believing in something is the right one. Uh, and the easier slogan, bumper sticker argument that is more easily comprehended by folks who are not deeply knowledgeable is the, is the more persuadable one. If you're on the side of the more complicated issue, how do you go about that, particularly in the context of cable television when you only have a few minutes? And, and is that part of your diagnosis about liberals? Oh, very much so. I, I share a lot of that diagnosis. I do think, and this is not just the US Democratic Party, this is the Labour Party in the UK where I'm originally from. It, you know, the reputation for being technocratic, bureaucratic, managerial. Um, you know, uh, what's the line? You know, re Republicans bring a bazooka to a knife fight. Democrats bring a policy paper. Um, and I think, you know, you look at 2016, you talk about bumper slogans. You ever had a paper cut? Uh, good, good luck to you up against a bazooka. Have you ever watched 1980s action films? Uh, I've watched many and they're in the book. Um, but the, I, I, look, 20, you made the point about slogans. In, in 2016, I think we can all remember that Donald Trump ran by saying he would build a wall, ban Muslims and lock her up. 
I remember it now. I mean, I can't get it out of my head. I think a lot of us remember. It was it was very catchy. He knew what he was doing. He's smarter than he looks or sounds, sadly. And I think Hillary Clinton came along with a 17-point childcare plan. And I'm sure it was a fantastic childcare plan that would have helped this country move forward. But I didn't read it. I didn't need to hear about it in the context of presidential election. And I've made this point before. There's been six presidential elections in the 21st century. Three democratic victories, three democratic losses. It's not a coincidence to me. I know correlation is not causation, but John Kerry, Al Gore, and Hillary Clinton all lost. Joe Biden and Barack Obama won. Uh, and I see that partly as a result of those three were very intelligent, many would say decent people in many ways, but they weren't the most inspiring of orators. They weren't the best at messaging. Uh, they weren't the best at persuading or inspiring. And Barack Obama, Joe Biden, a very different Joe Biden is not some soaring orator, but he's authentic. When he speaks, whatever you think about him, whether you agree with him or not, you know he's not doing talking points. Barack Obama, of course, in a different league when it comes to speaking. So I do think that's a problem. I do think Democrats, liberals, progressives think that if I can just deploy one more statistic, <laughs> one more Pew poll, and I will have defeated, vanquished my opponent. And I think um, that's not the case. And I, I talk in two chapters at length about how the human brain does not work in this way. You all know this from arguing with your spouse or your mother-in-law, that it's not facts or figures that work. It's with members of your friend circle, your family, that the emotional appeal is what works, that identifying with people is what works, that telling stories is what works, that showing passion and anger, showing you're not a robot is what works. Um, it's not just coming along with lots and lots of statistics. Facts matter, don't get me wrong. I'm not Kellyanne Conway. This is not kind of a post-fact, alternative fact world. And I talk about the importance of showing your receipts in the book, but it has to be married with, it has to be combined with an emotional approach, it has to be combined, you know, if it's facts versus feelings, feelings will win nine times out of 10. And I don't think enough progressives have internalized that point. And by the way, just a small point on your bumper slogans, there are politicians who are good at bumper slogans. There are politicians who are good at kind of one-liners. And that's not just, a, it's not even a left-right thing. I made the point on, uh, on TV yesterday. You take the Democratic Party, people like Eric Swalwell, who, who wouldn't call himself a lefty, has done, has done some really good campaign ads. I don't know if you've seen them. Very, very powerful on 1-6 and the threat to democracy. On the other side, you've got Bernie Sanders, who is very good at rousing people and very good at taking the same anger that the right takes and channels it towards transgender kids and Muslim migrants, but channels it towards the 0.1%, channels it towards uh, the banks who are ripping you off or the big pharma. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I talk in the book about Elizabeth Warren, who I consider to be uh, one of the great debaters of our time. She, the way, you know, no matter what Elizabeth Warren ever does between now and the day she meets her maker, we will all thank her for taking Michael Bloomberg off the board in one night in 60 seconds, right? I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. That was debating. That was just debating genius. I talked about throwing stuff at the TV. That was me kind of cheering and jigging in front of the TV, uh, watching that debate in Las Vegas. She did it in 60 seconds. So. I think there are people who can do it, to go back to your point, but it is harder. Agreed. It's much Look, easier to say, you know blame the that? migrant, blame the transgender kid. Donald Trump can do that. Donald Trump can do what? He, he eviscerated Jeb Bush oh, yeah. in how oh, many yeah. seconds? I mean, I opened yeah. the chapter. I have a chapter in the book called Play the Man, Not the Ball, and it's about ad hominem arguments, and I make a case in favor of ad hominem arguments. I was going to ask you about that. So yeah, Donald Trump. Make the, make the case in favor of ad hominem arguments. Let me give you three reasons. Uh, the first reason is it works. Um, Donald Trump eviscerated 16 more qualified rivals for president in 2016, governors, senators, um, business leaders. He didn't do it because he had a better policy paper on childcare. Uh, he did it because low energy Jeb really hit home. I still remember Lion Ted and I still laugh at little Marco, <laughs> right? We could all say, oh, it's so below America. We all loved it, right? Sorry, we all loved it. Now, I don't like the racist stuff he does, obviously, but again, sadly, he's good at this horrible abuse, and it's called the abusive ad hominem. It's one of many ad hominems. It's not one I push heavily in the book. So there are good ad hominems and bad ad hominems. I mean, again, all depends on the context, Bri. Right. So I did, yeah, the, the three ad hominems I talk about in the book are abusive ad hominems, just name calling, going after someone saying you're a liar. And I say there's a, there, is a, there is a time and a place to call someone a liar. If someone has a history of lying and turns up next to you and starts telling the crowd things, factual things, it is your duty to point out to the crowd don't trust that person. They have a history of lying. Now that is technically an ad hominem argument because you're not engaging with their arguments, you're going after them. I say go after them. 
That's abusive ad hominem. Yeah. There's the circumstantial ad hominem, which is you point out conflicts of interest, which is we, you as a lawyer, I as a journalist do very often. I'm sure you've done it on the witness stand. If you have been paid by the fossil fuel industry to say, hey, climate change, it's all a bit of a hoax. It's worth pointing out. The guy's saying it's a hoax. He kind of financially benefits from saying it's a hoax, right? That's a circumstantial ad hominem. And then the third ad hominem is the two quoque, pointing out the hypocrisy, saying, hey, you're pushing this argument. You want everyone to agree with you on this position. How come you don't follow it? Oh, Mr. Republican Congressman, you're anti-abortion. What about the mistress whose abortion you paid for? Now, again, people say, oh, it's a scurrilous have you Have you had that moment in an interview? I've not had that particular okay. moment, no. Because <laughs> I want to watch that one. I've had, I've, had other, I've had other moments where, for example, I spoke to John Bolton on my show in 2020, and we talked about him giving speeches to the MEK. John Bolton is a hawk on Iran, as you know. He literally wrote a New York Times op-ed saying, bomb Iran. That's literally in the headline. Thank you, New York Times. And Bolton came on my show and I asked him about his speeches to a group called the MEK, which is called the Mujahideen Ikhalq. It's a crazy, cultish, misogynistic Iranian opposition group. But because it's anti the Ayatollahs, a lot of Western politicians have bought some kind of Kool-Aid that they're the opposition group we should support, including Democrats. Bolton went and gave a multiple paid speeches to this group. So I challenged him on that because he was like, I support democracy. But you also get paid tens of thousands of dollars to uh, support regime change in Iran. And he didn't like that. Nobody buys my opinion, and you can ignore that if you want. I'm very comfortable. I have never said anything other than what I believe. And we are now, sir, 20 minutes into this interview, which you said was for 15. I believe it's 15 minutes. I've got a timer going off in my ear. So he started saying that time's up, interview's got to go, switch off the camera. Um, so I have had moments like that, and I believe they're justified. So just to go back to your original question, the main reason why ad hominem arguments work is because Aristotle told us 2,000 years ago that there's three ways you win an argument with the emotional appeal, pathos, with the rational appeal, logos, and with your own personal credibility, ethos. Your credibility matters hugely when you're trying to convince someone. If you're a doctor, people trust you when you talk about COVID. If you're a general giving advice on what the Ukrainian military strategy should be on cable, people say, listen to that general, right? Your credibility, your qualifications, your expertise, as we saw in the pandemic, a lot of people coming along giving kind of quack science. Yes. You should question your opponent, your adversary, your interviewees, qualifications, expertise. You should be upping your own credibility and expertise and diminishing your opponents. That's, that's, it's madness. It's malpractice not to do that if you're trying to win an argument. You, know, you were speaking a few minutes ago about the importance of stories and emotion and the policy shift in this country that, that caused me to think about the attitude in America about same-sex marriage. That shifted pretty quickly if you think about the arc of the country um, did that shift happen because there were debates about statistics and data, or did that happen for the reasons that you're describing, that people told stories about family members and heard about their family members and a general consensus developed that was very different from what even liberal orthodoxy was among so-called progressive politicians in the mid-2000s? Yeah, I don't have the stats to hand, but there is fascinating uh, study and polling done of the impact of Modern Family, the TV show Modern Family, on people's attitudes, especially uh, conservative Americans' attitudes who watch this show because it's a show about families and family values and the American family, but of course includes a very famous gay couple. And there is polling or data, I can't remember the exact study that was done, that shows exactly that, that having that story beamed into your front room, into your family room, through the TV every night or every week, uh, had a massive effect. And I've talked about that in the context of, you know, I'm a member of a minority, I'm a Muslim. Muslim who grew up in the UK, now living in the US, two countries where Islamophobia really took hold after the 9-11 attacks here and the 7-7 attacks in the UK. And I've said for years to fellow Muslims of mine who do TV, who do media, you're going to go on a right-wing outlet or you're going to talk to a right-wing newspaper, you're going to talk to a right-wing audience just coming up and being like, you know what? The data shows that far-right terrorism has killed far more people than is ISIS terror. That's not going to convince anyone. Well, they shouldn't use that voice. Yeah, they should, definitely shouldn't use that voice. <laughs> I would be um, against that, that would, voice. That would, that would work in the 1930s over Pathé footage in black and white. Um, although Lawrence O'Donnell told me last night that I can win any argument because I have a British accent in America. I don't know if that still counts. I made the point that Piers Morgan poisoned the well for those of us who are British journalists and had to come and do a show here later. Uh, I can never say anything about guns anymore. Um, so, but yeah, the point being, as a Muslim, I used to make a very clear argument, which is, you are not, and I, and I did a debate on Islam at the Oxford Union, which went viral. I talk about a lot about it in yeah, the book. Do. A lot of Muslims know me for that debate. I get a lot of free meals in restaurants because of that debate. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say this to you. Think about what the opposite of this motion is. 
If you vote no tonight, think about what you're saying the opposite motion is. That Islam isn't a religion of peace, it's a religion of war, of violence, of terror, of aggression. That the people who follow Islam, me, my wife, my retired parents, my six-year-old child, that 1.8 million of your fellow British residents and citizens, that 1.6 billion people across the world, your fellow human beings, are all followers, promoters, believers in a religion of violence. Do you really think that? Do you really believe that to be the case? And one of the points I make, I talk about me, my family, my parents, my children. If you say Islam is a violent religion, what are you saying about me and my kids? What are you saying about my elderly retired parents who have been, you know, my father's been a British citizen for five decades, paid taxes, voted in elections, supported the Labour Party. You've got to tell those stories. You're never going to convince people that Muslims or whichever minority group you're talking about are a part of the fabric of this country. You're never going to win people over to your, you're never going to defeat bigotry um, by just throwing statistics or laws, even though statistics and laws are important. But it is by telling stories about who you are. And I tell a story in the book about how I'm sitting in a small rural town, Crewkern in England, tiny town in southern rural England, in I think 2009-10 on a live BBC radio show. And we're in a hall like this, bigger, 400, 300, 400 people. It's an elderly, white, conservative rural audience. Myself and David Lammy, who's now the shadow foreign secretary in the UK, then he was just a backbench MP. We're the only people who are people of color. We're on the panel and we're the only people under the age of 40. I whisper to him, what's going on? We're screwed tonight. It's a panel debate. And the first question is about whether a Jordanian Al-Qaeda supporter should be deported back to Jordan where he will be tortured. What argument do I make to this crowd who are Daily Mail readers, who applauded the question, made it very clear they wanted him out? How, if I come along and start saying, well, Amnesty, I'll do the voice, in Amnesty International, uh, in Protocol 4 of the European Convention on Human Rights, Universal Dec none of that is going to work with this crowd. They don't care about Amnesty International, the European Convention on Human Rights. So what did I do? I told a story about being British and what it means to have the Magna Carta, what it means to have habeas corpus, why it's part of my identity as someone who grew up in the UK as children of immigrants, and why it doesn't matter how repulsive that, that Muller or that, quote, sheikh is, he deserves the protection of the same British liberties that we all have. And the crowd applauded. I was like, wow, I didn't see that coming. But that you, you have to be able to talk in those terms if you're going to kind of persuade, to go back to your point, persuade the unpersuadables. Now, do, did I change their minds? Who knows? But I certainly bonded with them, connected with them, engaged with them in that moment. Yeah, and, and part of the, the task, depending on the, what we're talking about, I think you're saying, uh, despite the title of the book, you don't have to win every argument in that moment the first time you have it that as we saw with same-sex marriage and some other issues, building an understanding on the part of other people in your point of view over time can do a lot of things. I want to talk about something that I mentioned to you that I yes. really want to talk to you about in the green room, and that is, as I picked up your book and, and began to read it, I was thinking to myself, there's some people you cannot have an argument with. There's some people you cannot debate. One of those people is Rudy Giuliani. Um, and I've seen him. You know, I, I would sometimes follow him when I made appearances on cable news myself and he just makes up so many things and he talks at such a brisk pace about things that weren't asked about he's throwing facts at you and i i, I really i really wanted to ask you about that phenomenon and donald trump does the same thing and then of course i was very um excited to see that there's actually a term for that kind of debater what's the term for that kind of debater and how do you deal with that kind of debater so I wrote a chapter called Beware, Beware the Gish Galloper. Gish Galloper. The Gish Gallop. So there was a man called Dwayne Gish, the late Dwayne Gish, passed away. He was a creationist, a young earth creationist, and he was the top creationist debater. So I don't know if you've seen, if you go on YouTube, you can find many debates between evolutionists and creationists. It was a big thing for a while, especially in the 90s uh, on college campuses in big evangelical churches where a kind of biochemist, evolutionary biologist would volunteer to debate with a creationist. He was the best on their team in vanquishing far more qualified, eminent scientists. And he didn't do it because he had a greater grasp of science. He did it, uh, he ran rings around them because he would basically overwhelm them with cherry-picked stats, out-of-context quotes, um, incomplete statements, um, misrepresented studies. But he would do it in such a way that he would throw a blizzard of these. He would deluge his opponent with these deflections, these distractions. And the scientist, A, not being a great speaker, perhaps not being a professional debater, first of all, but number two, also just in the constraints of a formal debate with time limits and kind of format, could not rebut all the arguments, leading a quote-unquote neutral audience to be like, 
Well, maybe the creationist has a point right. the because they're was, not being responded to. They, they didn't rebut the 99 Because it's impossible. So, so it's ha- impossible. So it's impossible. Yeah. So what do you do in that circumstance? So, you, is that a debate you walk away from? So it can be. Yeah. Uh, it can be. There's no silver bullet. Let's be clear. There's no silver bullet to do with the Gish Gallup. That's why the Gish Gallup is so scary and so effective and why Donald Trump used it to ride it all the way to the White House. Um, well, uh, Eugenia Scott, who's a scientist who coined the phrase Gish Gallup, said... Don't do formal debates with these people. Go on TV radio where you get your say and there's a moderator who can control it. But don't do formal debates where they can just go uninterrupted. And the point someone makes in the book, I can't remember who I quoted in the book, but somebody wrote about Dwayne Gish, who's like, he would go from one town to another town and just repeat the same arguments that have been rebutted earlier because the new crowd wouldn't know, especially in the pre-internet days. So one option is, you know, choose the terms of your debate. What is the format? But even a moderator, I make the point in the book, how many of you saw the first presidential debate in 2020? Chris Wallace, who is a good interviewer. He is a good interviewer. He could not control Donald Trump in that. He didn't know about the Gish Gallop. He didn't know. About, he wasn't prepared for the Gish Gallop. Donald Trump in two minutes, I think I say in the book, every nine seconds, Donald Trump threw a false statement or falsehood or nonsense statistic um, in a space of two minutes, dozens and dozens, and he couldn't be controlled. What do you do in that scenario? So I say in the book, don't give up all hope. There is a way to do it. There's a three-step process, you'll be shocked to hear. Three parts. Number one, and you'll remember this because I'm saying three. Trust me, you're going to take the three things that Manny said. The three-part structure is what you do in your face with a Trump or a Giuliani or a Dwayne Gish is number one, you pick your battle. You cannot physically, the whole point is there's no time. You cannot respond to 99 arguments. So pick the weakest, dumbest, most ludicrous argument that your opponent's thrown at you and hone in on that and put all your energy into ridiculing that, mocking that, taking it apart, so that the audience watching, again, remember, the aim is the audience watching, not the Gish Galloper, can see that if that argument is so nonsensical and so easily rebutted, what does that say about the other arguments on offer? It's called the weak point rebuttal. That's one way of doing it. That's just your first step. Then the second step is don't budge. And this is a message to my fellow, to my colleagues in the US media. Don't budge when you're doing an interview. Somebody throws a bunch of BS at you. You know, Steve Bannon famously said, our opponents are not the Democratic Party, they're the media. And the way you deal with the media is to flood the zone with shit. That was his famous phrase. That's what they're doing. They're flooding the zone with excrement. What do you do in that scenario? You don't budge. They want you to move on to the next question. They want you to be overwhelmed by this blizzard of nonsense, not notice the nonsense, and move to your next topic. And in a time-poor cable news environment with an ad break coming up, I say less is more. If you're doing an interview... Do three topics, not six topics, and focus on those three topics. Or if the first topic is going poorly and a lot of stuff is being thrown out, skip the next two times. I've I've said this many, many times. That's what lawyers do in the courtroom. So the example I give in the book is there's a guy called Steve Rogers, not Captain America, sadly, uh, who was a Trump advisor who I interviewed in 2018. And it's my pinned tweet, if those of you want to watch the clip after this. It's had kind of, it's had, I think, 10 and a half million views, bizarrely. Uh, it's because basically he was saying nonsense. He was echoing Trump's nonsense. I, my team and I, Al Jazeera English at the time, we decided to pick one issue that we really want to go into. So Trump had said at the time, if some of you remember, there's new steel. U.S. Steel announced six new steel mills. Complete lie. All the fact is lie. U.S. Steel said we didn't announce any new six steel mills. Thing is, Trump knows he's going to get away with it. No one's going to ask about it. If they do, whatever. So I asked him about it. And he said, oh, well, you know, there've been a lot of new steel, but, but have there been six new ones? Well, I don't know. What he meant to say was Matt, but six. I wouldn't budge. Six. Will you? Con- that's a lot. Well, no. And at one point he said to me, just move on. Because <laughs> he, he just had never dealt with an interviewer who just wouldn't move to, I said, no. The president of the United States has been very responsive to the American people, and the American people are doing well. Look, they, That's people fine. can you look can, at me and say, Steve Rogers lied. Well, and the president can be a liar. There's no contradiction between those two statements. I, I am not going to say the president of the United States is a liar. No, I know I'm you're not, not but I've just that. put to you a multiple right. lies, and you've not been able to respond to any of them. Let me ask you this. I did um, respond to them. What didn't happen is you didn't hear what you wanted to hear. What did That's I want to hear? Happen. I wanted to hear that there are no you, steel you wanted, you just you wanted to up. hear me say, no, I, well, let's go on. And I said, oh, you want me to move on because you know it's a lie. And that's the third part of the rebuttal, which is call it out. The best thing you can do when somebody is spreading bullshit is to step back, not engage with the bullshit. Point out to the people, this is a strategy. Yeah. That what they're doing is a gish gallop. And the, you know, the Rand Corporation referring to Putin's strategy calls it the firehood of falsehood. And the Rand Corporation has this phrase, taking the metaphor to the extreme, when you're faced with a fire hose of falsehood, 
Put raincoats on your audience, protect them. So the way you do that is by pointing out, call it out. And again, my friend Jonathan Swan, now of the New York Times and of Axios, he did that brilliant Trump interview yeah. where he stood up to the Gish Gallup. Trump wanted to just throw, remember Trump asks for pieces of paper. He has like, look at South Korea, look at Germany. And most interviewers are going, okay, but I've got my next question. Jonathan said, okay, let's look at South Korea. Trump's like, shit, you can see on the ship. I don't know anything about South Korea. Um, and that's what, and yeah. Jonathan points out, what are you talking about here? Yeah. Don't budge, call it out, pick your battle. Those are the three things you can do to be an example of that. And Jonathan Swan and I have had this conversation and we teach this in cross-examination in court. Guys on the witness stand, you ask a simple question. Did you drive your car to the park that morning? And he does the gallop and says all sorts of other stuff. And, and many questioners, lawyers, interviewers will rephrase the question. Don't rephrase the question. Yeah. Okay, yep. wait till they're done. You pause a beat. Did you drive your car to the park that morning? Again, they do all their nonsense. You ask it six times until they answer the question. And I know you do that. Jonathan Swan does that. Not many. So Jeremy Paxman, who's, uh, any of you who know the BBC, my, my kind of idol growing up was Jeremy Paxman, who was the host of Newsnight. And if you go on YouTube tonight, he's famous in British media history. He had Michael Howard, the Home Secretary, our Attorney General in the UK, who had just fired a prison governor. It was a huge scandal in the mid-90s. Paxman asked him the same question 14 times. <laughs> Did you fire Martin? And he went again and again. And here's the funny part. <laughs> Turns out after the years of plaudits, Jeremy Paxman, what a brilliant interview. Years later, Paxman admits that basically the next guest had fallen through and they just said, by time. <laughs> so he just, uh, he get, people had the greatest interview of all time. He was just filling time on live TV. Some, sometimes it it's, not, it's not, so last question for me, how is it possible you didn't go to law school? I mean, win every argument. You would have been a hell of a lawyer. So my wife is a lawyer. She's often asked me that question. Um, but I think, I mean, I considered it. I'll be honest with you. No disrespect to you or my wife. None taken in but, advance. But I remember thinking, uh, if I did law, it would be criminal law. That's the only law that would be, I'm not going to do corporate law. Uh, with respect to all the corporate lawyers in the room, I see one uh, not far from me. Um, I, if I did it, it would be criminal law. And if I did criminal law, I'd have to either be a defense attorney and defend horrible people or be a prosecutor and prosecute innocent people. And I don't know. I, I had, a, I had, I had, you, you don't have to do the second thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may be a discussion for another night about okay. the US criminal justice system. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, my mother wishes I was a lawyer. You are brown like me. You know that brown mothers don't recognize journalism as a proper career. <laughs> My mother to this day would rather I be an accountant or a doctor like her or a lawyer like you. She's often said to me, why don't you be a lawyer? She's asked me that question. I've had this question many a time. Even now I'm in my 40s. She still thinks journalism is like an internship. And I might, <laughs> I might grow out of it and, and do. So maybe law school, maybe I can go back to law school. You maybe if I get fired one day, I've got nothing else to it's do. It's never also. too late. Do the LSAT. Now, as you folks know, I don't usually venture into conversation about celebrities, but I want to end the show this week talking about something of a local celebrity in my hometown of New York. Maybe if you live in the area or pay attention to things like this, you've heard of who I'm talking about. He's somewhat new on the scene and has certainly stirred up some drama in recent weeks. I'm talking about Flacco, the owl. Flacco is no ordinary owl. He's a Eurasian eagle owl who was born and raised in captivity at the Central Park Zoo in New York City. That is until February 2nd, when his enclosure at the zoo was vandalized and he was able to escape through the cut mesh. Off he went into the open skies of Central Park, an environment completely unfamiliar for the species. Once the zoo attendants noticed he was gone, a search began for the runaway bird of prey. They notified the New York City Police Department who actually responded to witnesses who saw him perched on Fifth Avenue. The NYPD couldn't do anything, but they did tweet photos of Flacco with the caption, well, that was a hoot. The main concern of zoo staffers was that because Flacco had spent most of his life in captivity, he wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. Even in the Big Apple, he'd have to hunt for food and avoid dangers like predators and rat poison. His story spread throughout the city and beyond. People were concerned for this little guy's safety and were anxious to see if he'd be able to cut it in a notoriously cutthroat city. But it turns out he was able to wing it. 
Ten days later, Flacco was already proving himself able to survive in the city wilderness. In a statement, zoo officials wrote, quote, We observed him successfully hunting, catching, and consuming prey. We have seen a rapid improvement in his flight skills and ability to confidently maneuver around the park, end quote. The zoo, under additional pressure from advocates, changed its stance from seeking to recapture Flacco to just monitoring him in the wild, and mostly just being in awe of him. And there has been no shortage of people lining up to get a glimpse of the wide-eyed bird in the wild. Since he made his escape, crowds of dedicated bird watchers, tourists, and everyday New Yorkers have found themselves in Central Park, watching Flacco protect his branch, or if they're lucky, enjoy an uptown dinner. The photos of him are beautiful. His multicolored feathers, orange eyes, and sharp ears stand out. He perches high up in the trees, round and regal. As you can tell, his story is not only for bird enthusiasts. It struck the heart of so many people both in New York and elsewhere. Flacco's is a story of freedom, of resilience, about someone who took a risk and figured it out along the way, like many New Yorkers. It's a story about someone who's just getting by in a big city, but works as hard as they can every day. And it's about the zoo's ability to let go, to see that even if they really wanted him home, he was ready to leave the nest. Godspeed, Flacco. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Mehdi Hassan. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.